This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. After two episodes of having to host this show on my own, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome my co-host, Lizzie Uziel, back to the program. My co-host, uh, who had COVID, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> right. And was not able to join us. You know, Baruch Hashem, we had some pretty interesting guests uh, so aside from the couple listeners who emailed wondering where Lizzie was, uh, I assume most people didn't even notice she was gone. <laughs> um, yeah, it's great to be back. So we also just spent the Shabbat in the northern Shamron. I went back to, well, we were in Chomesh uh, in addition to several other places. But for me, returning to Chomesh on Friday before Shabbat was very uh, surreal it was, first of all, you know, just very kind of like misty, rainy weather, which already comes with its own experiential baggage. But also, I, the last time I was in Chomesh was before Ariel Sharon destroyed it in 2005. It was like a town with homes and bus stops, and it just looked like, like a desolate, haunted village. Yeah, it definitely had this surreal feel and quality to it. I'm sure the weather was a big contributing factor to that uh, but it just kind of had this like sad energy like there was once bustling life there and all of a sudden it was yeah like you said desolate and like a ghost town so it was my first time there ever mm. and it was it was a very interesting experience right but the good news is that we saw it was coming back to life there are jewish families living there not many um, and it's not easy for them, obviously, but they're there, and uh, there's a yeshiva there, um, and uh, there are efforts being made to bring Chomesh back to life. Uh, following one of the big successes of this government, the, the cancellation of the disengagement law, which makes it legal for Jews to go back to places like Chomesh that were destroyed in 2005 as part of the Gaza disengagement that... U.S. President George W. Bush forced on our government at the time. It wasn't limited to Gaza. It was very important to Bush, actually, that Sharon extend the policy to at least part of the West Bank uh, in order to signal that uh, this wouldn't stop at Gaza. I think one of the things that was super eye-opening to me, not something I didn't know already, but just something that you're able to, I guess, confirm for yourself, or at least I was able to confirm for myself, it's just the determination of these people who have this connection to this place and just because it was destroyed doesn't mean they're going to give up on their determination to actually live there and have been trying for like almost 20 years to actually go back to this place that was taken from them that was destroyed and like you could see how dedicated they are to actually getting back to this piece of land that they have this real, real connection to. And you can hear it in the way that they speak about it. Um, and in the fact that, like I said, for almost 20 years, they've been organizing efforts to slowly by slowly chipping away at the government's determination to keep them away from this place with their own arguably stronger determination to actually return. Um, and I'm sure Chomesh, like now we see with Gaza, it's not the only place in which we've been displaced from and have the motivation to go back. But it was interesting to actually be at ground zero for one of the places that have been destroyed and to speak with the Jews who are leading the efforts to rebuild these destroyed places. That's a very good point, Lizzie. And I think it really pertains to the whole effort to populate Yudah Shomron 
as uh, with Jews, uh, whether we're talking about in the wake of the Six Day War or or now, uh, we spent Shabbat in a community called Shavei Shomron, which is not too far from Chumash, but wasn't destroyed in 2005. It, I think, became the, if I'm not mistaken, the northernmost Jewish community in the West Bank following the destruction of the four that were destroyed. And I remembered something while we were there. A little over 20 years ago, I actually spent a, quite a bit of time in Shavei Shomron because a group I was a part of wanted to create a new yeshu of a new Jewish community on a mountaintop nearby. And it's so funny to think about how naive we were when, you know, when I at the time was a relatively recent ole, I'd been in the country maybe a year tops. And I was part of this group that was looking to create new yeshuvim, new Jewish communities on different mountaintops in the West Bank. And we were so naive, like trying to do it officially, bureaucratically, with the approval of the community and the support, etc. Like like this, in the end, you got to just take something. You know, in the end, you just got to go somewhere, in my opinion, and I believe according to the teachings of Harav Tziuda Cohen Cook, it shouldn't be private Palestinian land. It should be a place that is not owned by anyone else. But uh, we should go places and just say this is where we are with the expectation that the army will displace us and we'll come back and they'll displace us and we'll come back and they'll displace us and we'll come back and they'll displace us and we'll come back. Because like you said, Lizzie, it honestly comes down to a battle of will and you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it, showing you're never going to stop. Uh, until the right political moment or the right political conditions uh, arrive that convince a government, a coalition, a defense minister, that it might just be better to authorize what you're doing and give it legality. And And that's how a lot of these communities ultimately do get approved. It's usually a battle of wills. Even when we're talking about big yeshuvim, even if we're talking about Beit El, you know, every step of Beit El's early growth was really a fight between the Jews trying to live there, and the government and the army that kept trying to stop them from living there. Uh, And ultimately, in that battle of wills, obviously, the Jews of Betel won out. Yeah, I think we shouldn't take for granted our presence in Judea and Samaria at all. It was hard fought for. It's, It's still hard fought for. It's not like a fact of life for a large percentage of the Israeli population and for a large percentage it is but I think the like determination and the power of will that the people who decide to you know start their lives in the West Bank have is very very impressive it's it's not easy in certain places now it's easier than others because of the people who have paved the way before them but in these new communities it is like a full-time job basically trying to solidify our presence there. Right. And it's a national interest. You know, somebody, um, I think it was uh, Elisheva Chazan or Isabella Chazan, as she sometimes goes by. She sent me some uh, screenshot from uh, some like, you know, like a little Hasbara kid basically saying that uh, for the Jews who want to go back to Gaza, who's going to tell the parents of the soldiers that are going to have to guard them? So I said to her, Uh, Ultimately, it's very clear that for Jews to be able to live in the south of our country safely, Gaza needs to be under Israeli control. And that means our army has to be in Gaza. Now, having a friendly civilian population on the ground, meaning having Jewish communities reestablished in Gaza, will only make the army's work easier. 
Uh, I know this. When I was a soldier, I would often sleep in Jewish communities in the West Bank. You know, it's good to have friendly populations, whether you just need a place to go to a grocery store or rest or train or launch a operation from, whatever it is, it's, it's helpful to have a friendly population on the ground. And to keep your motivation to actually be there, meaning it's hard to feel like you're putting your life on the line to maintain a presence somewhere if it just stops at the military level. But when you see actual communities that are growing and thriving and people just living their everyday lives, you feel like you have something to really fight for and a reason to stay on the ground and a reason to protect the area that you're protecting. So it's a lot more direct. Yeah, it's a lot more real when you see that there are families here and, and there's life. And, and again, if Gaza is part of our country, we should be able to live there. I have opinions on how we can best get buy-in from Palestinians, meaning I do think that buy-in from Palestinians is important, uh, but I'm not willing to compromise on Gaza. Mm -hmm. Like, we have to be there. It's part of our country. We have to be there. And we were wrong for leaving. So speaking of taking back Gaza, we actually... For our Patreon members in the $36 tier. And, um, and up. And up. Um, we actually just sent out uh, some swag, which this time happened to be a Take Back Gaza shirt, which I love. And I love the fit. And it looks great. And I love the message. And so really excited about that. Thought I should share with you guys. I mean, everybody seems to really love the fit. If I had to guess, I'd say the secret is uh, tight arms and loose belly. Like, I think that the shirt was actually designed to look good on everybody. And especially people with guns on their belts, you know, who need it even looser than those without guns on their belts. And it's a great way for us to be able to show appreciation for all of our Patreon supporters who really keep this show free and independent. Um, thank you. And uh, for those of you who have not yet joined our Patreon community, I invite you to do so. There are several tiers you can join at, and I believe it was $36 a month and up who received the Take Back Gaza shirt. Uh, you can still receive a Take Back Gaza shirt if you go and join our Patreon community at the $36 tier or one of the higher tiers right now. Um, but or you can buy it on our website. That's true. That's true. It is available at the store over at visionmovement.org. But uh, for those of you who, who listen regularly and love the show and want to support the show but just don't have any expendable income right now to support us financially, uh, there is a way you can really help us, and that would be to click like on whatever platform you're listening to this on, uh, give it a five-star review, ask your friends to do the same because that really does help us in terms of the algorithm, in terms of getting our message out, in, in terms of ranking on all of these platforms. And uh, we want that when somebody is trying to check out a podcast on Israel or Jewish identity or the conflict, we want them to see us as an option to click. Yeah, we have a unique message, a voice that's not really heard elsewhere in the pro-Israel world. And so your support and just making sure that our programs get the most exposure by clicking like and sharing and reviewing as much as you can definitely helps us out if you're in a tough spot financially to be able to support us yeah super important something you can do and again it, it for us it's not just enough that you're listening to our program we want you to be part of the struggle in any way you can be all right so so i wanted to just ask Rabbi Huda, a couple of questions. Um, there's been a lot of changes going on 
in Israeli society since October 7th. Um, the volume is way up on national consciousness now. And there's even more talk nowadays about attaining independence from the United States now more than ever before. In Israeli society. In Israeli society. Do you see the possibility for a real movement for freedom from the United States to emerge here? And, and if you do, um, what political forces would be leading this charge? Mm. That's a great question. Um, the short answer is yes, or yes, but. Like, I definitely think there's a lot more, like, as you said, there's clearly a lot more talk about Israel becoming free from the United States. It's clear to a lot of Israelis that we're somewhat handicapped in this war as a result of our relationship with the United States, our dependency on the United States. On the one hand, that's become much more part of the mainstream conversation than in the past. Uh, also, it's to a certain extent part of Prime Minister Netanyahu's messaging to the public. He's basically saying that the Americans are about to force a two-state solution on us. They want to partition our land in half. They want to give the Palestinian Authority political and security control over parts of our land. And the only thing stopping that is Prime Minister Netanyahu. And that does seem to be the American view as well. I think in U.S. policy circles, the assumption is that the greatest barrier, the greatest obstacle to a two-state solution here is Benjamin Netanyahu. And if Netanyahu can be removed from office, then a two-state solution can once again become possible. Uh, so I do believe that while on the one hand, you're right, um, it's become much more mainstream in Israeli society to talk about the toxicity of our relationship with the United States and our need for independence, uh, even at the highest political levels. I mean, this is a conversation that we hear the Prime Minister of Israel having publicly for the first time. I, I believe that he's been having this conversation privately for a long time, but now it's public. Um, some people think it's just like an election campaign. I'm not that cynical. I think it's real. I think this is really what he's seen himself fighting against for years. Could also be both. It's of course both. But the conditions exist right now to turn up the volume on this conversation and to put it at the center of the national discourse. So on the one hand, that's true. Uh, on the other hand, I think... I think the United States, not just this administration, but previous administrations as well, have seen the removal of Netanyahu from power as the way to push through a two-state solution. I think that there is a concerted effort underway to remove Netanyahu from power. And from what I've seen, I, I think the Israeli media, unfortunately, at least the mainstream media, has been complicit, maybe not as a result of direct orders from Washington, but probably just as a result of, uh, you know, just a convergence of interests and wanting to support a certain vision for what Israel should be and who Israel should be allied with and uh, certain politicians, etc. I think there's a, I, I don't believe there's any elaborate conspiracy here, but I do think there are politicians on the ground who the United States would like to see in power who our media is much more favorable to than they are to Netanyahu. And there are policies that these forces in Israeli society believe would be good for Israel. And they happen to align with the U.S. empire's interest for West Asia. So I think that there's this kind of convergence of interests that we need to be careful of. And we need to understand that societal shifts like the one you're pointing out can be manipulated by the media. 
And I've seen it before, like during the second intifada, I remember that the Israeli public was over the Oslo Accords, over the two-state paradigm, and was really angry and scared to a certain extent. And the media played on those things to get the public back to a two-state place through the idea of separation, through the idea of we're going to put up a big wall, we'll be on one side, they'll be on the other side, we'll be safe, etc. So I've seen the media do that, just like right now, I think, when it comes to conversations over what happened on October 7th on Simchat Torah, the media is doing everything it can to blame this on Prime Minister Netanyahu, as if this was his fault. And one of the things we need to be very sensitive to and very aware of, and, and maybe even try to fix, is this lack of political intelligence in the national camp, especially the national religious camp here. I don't think our national religious camp even understands the difference between ideology and politics. Uh, we're talking about a group, we're talking about a sector of society that's extremely advanced in terms of ideology, but really doesn't even understand the basics when it comes to the politics that can be employed in order to actualize that ideology. Okay, I, I mean, yes, this is this is very true. I think there's a lot of things that are shifting um, within the Israeli public, but there's sort of this renegotiation of our identity going on, of our political stances and things are being debated upon in Israeli society. I know Khan, Khan 11, was it? Did a feature on reevaluating our relationship with the United States that's actually blocked in the United States, which is, you know- On YouTube. Pretty, on it, YouTube. I think it aired on the, the news though. It, yeah, but I think to see it on YouTube, if, if anybody wants to see it, we can send you the link. And if you have a VPN, you could access it even from the United States. But uh, yeah, it's available on Israeli YouTube, but not in the United States. This special that Khan 11 did on why Israel should wean itself off of U.S. support. Mm -hmm. So basically, there's this contrast between what the global response to this conflict is, which has pretty much been marked by widespread protests and allegations of genocide and appeals for a ceasefire and developments at the uh, international court. And this is very different from the perspective of Israelis who are actually here experiencing this conflict. So I'm curious what you what you believe are the key distinctions between these viewpoints, this global perspective and then this internal perspective that we're experiencing here. Right. I, I think when it comes to this war in particular, but I think the same could be said about the last hundred years of our history with the Palestinians, um, there are two completely different stories taking place, and it appears that both sides are blind to the story of the other. But of course, the Palestinian story is the story that the rest of the world sees and understands and can like attach themselves to, whereas the Israeli story is very hard for people to see. I think from the Israeli perspective, we're facing an existential threat. There are players, we're surrounded by players on all sides, proxies of Iran that want to destroy us. Hundreds of thousands of people have been evacuated from the north and south of our country and are living in a kind of limbo because it's not safe for them to go back to their communities. We had over a thousand people killed in one very traumatic day at the very beginning of all this. And we're doing something that we never thought we would do. We're doing so, our politicians, our army are doing something that for the last 16, 17, 18 years, 
they weren't willing to do because the cost in Palestinian lives was too high. I mean, you could just look at what we're doing, what the rest of the world sees, the carnage in Gaza. That's something we always knew we would have to do if we want to take out Hamas. There's no way to take out Hamas without cutting through thousands of Palestinians. And we weren't willing to do it until Simchat Torah. We weren't willing to do it. And the fact that we are should in and of itself, I mean, if you're not, if you're not taking the position that Israelis are simply genocidal colonizers, but you're actually talking about real human beings who are not looking to cleanse their hands and Palestinian blood and, and all of that, we're talking about a population that never thought we would actually, one of the reasons why we kind of resigned ourselves to tolerating Hamas on our border was because we knew taking them out would be too high a cost and we weren't willing to pay it. Even if we don't care about Palestinians, we weren't willing to pay it in terms of how we would look on TV and how the rest of the world would see us, which is exactly what's happening now. But clearly they did something and put us in a situation knowing not just that Hamas did it and wants to do it again, but also that we have threats on other borders and a more powerful actor behind them and the Americans tying our hands behind our backs all of that together makes us feel like there actually is an existential threat that we have to fight back against for our very survival. And that's something I think the world doesn't see. The world does not see Israel fighting for its survival right now. Yes, that's very true. Uh, yeah, I would say that our story is one that's relatively unknown, the way that we're encountering all of these difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, that human experience is basically shafted from the global narrative. It's We're just basically evil in the eyes of people who are watching this, and there's not exactly a nuance that's afforded to the Israeli no, experience. No, we're often, I think Israelis are often presented as these kind of like one-dimensional, caricature-ish settler colonizers by the left, by Palestinians, um, by their supporters. And it's unfortunate, and it's I think people could do better, because uh, just like we shouldn't reduce Palestinians to one-dimensional caricature stereotypes. They shouldn't do it to us. I think we'd be able to get a lot further in actually learning to live together and, and figuring something out between us if we actually understood each other. And e even if the goal is just to win, as I've said many times, I think we'd be able to adopt more effective methods of struggle in terms of how we choose to fight one another if we would take the time to actually understand the other and not reduce them to our like fantasy antagonist. Uh, but I also think that social media plays a big role in polarizing people. I think a lot of people are very much living in their own echo chambers, their political echo chambers that present almost completely different realities, right? Um, you know, I happen to travel in enough circles that my social media feed is, is pretty diverse. On Instagram, on Facebook, I see a lot of pro-Israel stuff, hardcore pro-Israel stuff, liberal Zionist stuff, anti-Israel stuff, Palestinian stuff, Marxist stuff, I got it all. And therefore, I'm able to see the, the range of views and range of perspectives on this conflict. But I don't think most people have that diverse a social media feed. And as a result, I think people are very much living in a fantasy of reality or a very narrow version of reality that is reinforced constantly by like everyone they're interacting with online. Uh, so I think that's something we need to take into consideration. There's definitely a huge 
gap between how Israelis feel right now versus how we're perceived from the outside, how the war looks from the outside. We're discussing this war from a completely different set of assumptions. I mean, uh, I've had plenty of conversations with people on the outside, including Jews, who like insist on speaking about this in the language of genocide and only understanding it as a genocide and don't seem to have any ability to really try even temporarily to understand what's going on from the Israeli perspective. One thing I, I do want to say, though, just from the recent events of the International Court and the role of South Africa in those proceedings, I think when I look at the behavior of South Africa, how South Africa as a state tries to position itself today, part of me feels like they're very much trying to be what Israel's supposed to be. You know, we're talking about a people that were oppressed, that achieved their liberation, or at least to a certain extent, they, they attained some level of liberation. And now they're trying to position themselves as this revolutionary actor on the world stage, as this champion of the oppressed. And in many ways, I think that's a message for us. Often, the secret to our redemption is communicated through the accusations of our critics and enemies. And we should take this message very seriously. What South Africa is trying to present itself as might be something relatively close to what Israel should be, a formerly oppressed people, a formerly persecuted people that attained liberation and should now be aligned with the oppressed of the world against injustice. Yeah, I think that's that, that's a fair assessment of how I think South Africa sees itself. Um, in reality, I'm not sure that's what they're actually achieving here, okay. but I, yeah. I can see why you would make the assessment that that's their goal. But I do want to circle back to something that you said before, which is that you see, you know, some Jews speaking about this in the language of, you know, genocide and coming at this from a perspective that seems a little out of touch with the perspective of what we could say is the main camp of the Jewish people. So when, when we see young diaspora Jews on the left or in general, actively siding with people who are either actually our enemies or who we perceive to be our enemies at a time when the Jewish people feel so vulnerable. Do you think it's correct for us to say that they've left the Jewish people? And as an addendum to that, is there a specific turning point where you would have to consider somebody a traitor to the Jewish people? Like, is there a point where you can't come back? Um, I certainly don't consider myself the authority on what that line is. Okay. I, I think there's always tshuva, and I know of plenty of really, um, for me at least, tear-jerking tshuva stories of people who had, for all intents and purposes, left the people of Israel and found their way back. Even some of the uh, intellectual leaders of Zionism, like uh, Moshe Hess, you could say that about. So there's always tshuva. Uh, so for anyone who feels personally, you know, either themselves or, or know someone else who, who seems to fit the description of what you're talking about, I think they, they should be, you know, consoled with the knowledge that it's never too late to come back. However, I think we also need to take a little bit of responsibility for, for not just what we're doing, but how it looks. I know that we can be explaining ourselves better. I think that what's called Hasbara has been such an abysmal failure for a number of reasons, largely because I don't think the people running the pro-Israel organizations ever thought they have the ability to change anyone's mind who doesn't already agree with them. 
I think that we're talking about donor-driven initiatives meant to make Israel look like a little sidekick to America in the Middle East, which only reinforces all of the accusations that people have been making against us for decades. So, uh, you know, I don't just blame the Jews who found themselves in anti-Israel movements um, or coming against us now. I can't just blame them. I, I feel like I have to also attribute some blame to all the institutions and organizations that have failed them. Like, for example, I know a couple of Jewish college students right now who had 12 years of pretty expensive Jewish education. They went to, uh, I don't know if I should call out the schools, but, but they went to what we'd call modern Orthodox pro-Israel day schools. And their parents, I'm sure, paid quite a bit of money you know, for that education, uh, with the hope that this will at the very least keep them as part of the Jewish people. This will keep them in the fold. This will keep them as part of us, uh, which seems to be one part of the American Jewish, like the official American Jewish agenda, goal. You know, they're, like one side of the coin has been to melt, to fit in, to become as American as possible. But the other side of the coin has been not to lose our identity and not to just melt completely. And I think that the American Jewish community has has struggled with this tension for over a century already. And a lot of the Jewish educational institutions, their primary function or dual primary functions is to help the students succeed in American society, like a real successful you know, American, while maintaining a connection and commitment to the Jewish people and the Jewish story, which includes you know, a connection to the state of Israel. And you would think, or I would think, that if we could take somebody with 12 years of high quality, expensive Jewish education, Jewish identity education, and give them an awareness of what Palestinians are experiencing, sensitivity to what Palestinians are experiencing, and give them an understanding of like revolutionary theory and, and how systems of oppression work and, and what's wrong with the world and how capitalism operates. If you're able to give all that to a young Jew with 12 years of high quality Jewish education, I think on paper, I think that would produce the revolutionary leadership that our generation needs like people who are deeply rooted in the Jewish story and are now gaining an awareness for how the world around them actually functions and what's wrong with it and how Palestinians have been experiencing our presence and why we might have made some of the mistakes we've made and why they've might have made some of the mistakes they've made. I, I think we'd be producing really high quality leadership. And when I see young Jews with that education joining the left on campuses and becoming organizers in movements for social change and justice. And when it comes to the Israel question, like just totally, totally flushing down the toilet, all of the things that they knew or we thought they knew about our history, about our identity, about our connection to this land, about how we, the Jewish people, have been experiencing the conflict, because that's also true. You know, the goal is not to learn how Palestinians have been experiencing this conflict and forget about our side or forget about our experiences or forget about our pain or our fears or our aspirations. The goal is to be able to hold both. And, and that's the other, um, and that's another failure I'd point out for Jewish education. They're trying to teach them to think like Westerners. Either we're right or the Palestinians are right. That's not how Jewish logic works necessarily. If you open up the Gemara, if you open up the Talmud, you see that truth isn't dualistic. 
right? It's paradoxical and it's possible for the Palestinian story to be true and painful and real and in need of being resolved and for the Jewish story to also be real and painful and beautiful and inspiring and, and also needing to move forward. And I think that the goal is to educate young people to be able to hold both on our programs. The Vision Movement, we're definitely educating young Jews to be able to hold both. But I'm thoroughly disappointed with the state of Jewish education in the United States if what's considered one of the best modern Orthodox Jewish day schools is failing to provide even the basic story of the Jewish people that could withstand the pressures of becoming more politically aware and socially conscious in university. Yes, but I also think when you, I think in general, living in the paradigm of the West, even if you have the most amazing Jewish education, if the way that you see the world is that, you know, only one story can be true, then either you're going to pick the route of sticking really strong with the Jewish story that you've been given and just not having the space to understand the Palestinian narrative, which is the route that a lot of people who come out of these institutions take, versus you take the other route, which is accepting the Palestinian narrative and then throwing your own out the window. I know for myself, I went to those same same kind of modern Orthodox institution, but moving to Israel definitely gave me the space to reevaluate, you know, okay, maybe what I've been taught is true, but maybe there's also another truth that I just wasn't seeing and wasn't capable of seeing because it was so important to me that my narrative be true in order to get myself through life and to hold on to my connection to this land that I wasn't even able to make the space to see this reality from someone else's perspective. When you live here, I think it affords you a little bit more flexibility to do that in a safe kind of way. I know plenty of people who live here and don't have that flexibility. So I'd like to think that our programs, you know, the Atit program helped you to find that space and to think differently. Yeah, I would, I would definitely say that that's true. Of course. So, okay, well, now speaking of Palestinians, you've, you've been involved with peace work between Israelis and Palestinians for about 15 years now? Roughly. So to what extent would you say that the events of October 7th and the months of war since that event have impacted your perspective on the likelihood of real reconciliation being possible? Um, well, I, I still think real reconciliation is possible. I, I do believe that ultimately we're going to have to learn to live here together mm-hmm. uh, unless one of us just totally annihilates the other one in war. But I don't really see that happening. I think we're going to have to live here together. Um, I also know that despite the fact that I am optimistic about reconciliation in the future, I'm also aware that now might not be the time for practical peace work. I think the best we can do right now is really check up on people. You know, I'm in touch with a lot of Palestinians who I care about, who I've worked with in the past, and who I might work with in the future. But there's not much more than checking up right now. Obviously, it's a difficult situation. And again, you know, in my social media feed, I definitely see people I know expressing pain and sometimes rage over losing a loved one or losing a relative in Gaza. This is just part of reality. I also have neighbors who've lost sons in Gaza who have fallen in battle. And also, uh, of course, they're the hostages in their families and the victims of Simchat Torah, October 7th. So it, it's really, you know, 
when the intensity of the conflict is so high, when the volume on the conflict is so high and the violence is so present and so graphic and so in our faces on social media, it, it's hard to see, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. But I do believe that light is there and I do believe it's going to require us to change. At the end of the day, Israel is transforming I believe, and I, I hope transforming into a direction that can make peace more possible. I know it's very counterintuitive for a lot of people, but I do believe that Israel's uh, socio-political trajectory is one that will make it easier for us to be an organic part of the region and not be perceived as a Western implant or a colonial presence. And I'm hopeful that uh, even though right now, the certainly the political representatives of the camps that are growing stronger might be less interested in reconciliation with Palestinians. I'm hopeful that if we can reach a situation where that is the sector of Israeli society that's actually engaging with Palestinians or engaging with the Islamic world or engaging with our neighbors more broadly, I, I think a lot of good things could come from that. I think a lot of changes can come in the relationship dynamics between us and the Palestinians, us and our neighbors, us and the Islamic world. That's fair. I think, you know, for myself, I, in the brief time that I had lived here, I had started to get involved with some peace work. And then, you know, the minute October 7th happened, um, I think I adopted the mentality. And I think I've said this on a couple other episodes that like, you know, there's a time to talk about peace and there's a time to talk about war. And I just don't think that neither us nor the Palestinians are in a place right now to even really be discussing peace. Like we're, we're in the middle of, of a battle at mm -hmm. the moment. And I don't think that that's the time where you sit down and you try to figure out what's going to be in the future. I do, I remain cautiously optimistic that there could be the potential for eventual reconciliation down the line. Um, but I think for most people involved in this situation who really care and are deeply invested in it, you know, it's just not the time where anyone really wants to discuss that right now. And I think many people want like the answers to like, how are we going to make peace with them? And I think we just kind of have to accept that the fact of reality at this moment is we're not going to have those answers right now. We're not going to come to those answers. We're still all deeply hurting. We're in the process of like losing family members, losing loved ones. Israel's fighting other battles that have nothing to do with Palestinians that, you know, we're not exactly in a in a peaceful headspace, nor do I think it would be good for our own personal safe, like national safety to be in a peaceful headspace when there's like war lurking. So it kind of just has to be something we all accept that right now is not really the time where we're going to really get any clear answer on what peace could look like in the future. I hear that. I, I totally understand that on an emotional level. However, my response to the many Israelis who feel what you're expressing right now is that if we don't come up with something, some idea for what the future can look like between us and Palestinians here, the Americans and their allies are going to try to use that lack of vision on our part to impose their vision on us, which is, of course, partitioning our land into two separate states, both dependent on the U.S. empire for survival. And I think we need to resist that. And one of the ways to effectively resist that is through trying to dedicate some of our brain power, some of our creativity, some of our imagination to figuring out how we can live together with Palestinians in this land uh, after this war is done. I would I would definitely agree that that's a risk of not talking about peace. Um, 
I'm not sure how successful the, the, the that's not new that's not news meaning the Americans have been pushing the same solution for peace for a while and I think most of us in Israel here are kind of sick of it and no longer buy into it so I'm not sure how successful that's going to be anyways but I I tend to agree with you that regardless we need to figure out what peace for us would look like but I think moreover it's just deciding what we actually want for ourselves in this land you're making a very important point and I think you're right that the current American calls for a two-state solution come across as very tone deaf right now to most Israelis uh, Israelis regardless of who they voted for in the last elections don't want to hear about a two-state solution right now it's offensive on a deep level and I've heard even a lot of liberal Zionist voices kind of calling on the Biden administration to like cool it with the two-state language. Like those Jewish institutions, Jewish organizations that are normally championing the two-state solution, even when they look ridiculous doing it, are actually right now calling on the Biden administration to turn down the volume on that language because they feel it's only a doing harm to their camp and uh, strengthening Netanyahu. If the American goal is to remove Netanyahu from office in order that they could then advance a two-state solution through Gantz or through Gallant or, or someone else, then this two-state rhetoric is actually very much playing into Netanyahu's message to the public. He's actually able to better, which I think is actually the truth of what's happening. He's positioning himself as the leader of the resistance to an American two-state push. And as long as the Americans keep talking about a two-state solution as the desired outcome uh, of the current situation, I think Netanyahu is going to, not just I think Netanyahu, they're saying the liberal Zionists who want to see Netanyahu removed and want to see a two-state solution are publicly telling the administration in Washington please stop saying this now because this is what you're doing. This is what you're actually doing. And I honestly think that even should another politician take Netanyahu's place and try to push forward the American two-state agenda, mm -hmm. he would be removed from office relatively quickly because I just don't think that's where Israelis are at right now. Meaning, at least for the time being, for the time mm -hmm. being until... Meaning, we're, we're preparing for like a war on another front at this point. So to now talk about putting ourselves in a more vulnerable position mm -hmm. before we've even dealt with all of the threats that we have to deal with, it just kind of, it's very tone deaf. Tone deaf doesn't even begin to even describe how unrealistic that is for most Israelis to be able to hear that right now. But it's good in a sense because it's I actually, it's, great. it's right, it's widening the gap between us and the United States and making more Israelis aware of how toxic the relationship is. Right. So that's what I say when I mean toxic talking about peace in general is just so deeply not on people's minds right now. Mm -hmm. It is on, on all the fronts, like regardless of what solution you're going to propose to people, it's very difficult to get people to think about um, a peaceful existence when we're, we haven't even seen through the extent of the war that we're in. Right, right. Well, the good thing about the solutions that I try to propose is that in addition to the fact that I genuinely believe they could actually lead to peace between like a real good relationship between us and the Palestinians and us in the Islamic world um, even if I'm wrong which I could be I've been wrong before but even if I'm wrong I think we've all been wrong before okay uh, but even if I'm wrong the ramifications of trying only make us stronger and better positioned to win if we have to fight again Meaning, I think that's what I like about the approach to peace that I've developed and that certain other people in the vision movement have developed, is that 
it only makes us stronger. It only strengthens our position. It doesn't make us more vulnerable. And it's based on our real identity, our real aspirations, and our real vision, the, the vision of our prophets and sages, like what Israel's supposed to be. So uh, it's always good, whether it works in terms of reconciliation with the Palestinians or not. I believe it can, and I believe it should, and I believe it will, Bezrat Hashem, one day. But even if it doesn't, even if I'm wrong, and even if peace is completely impossible, because if that can't work, nothing can work. So if there's no way to reconcile between us and the Palestinians, at least the course of actions that I advocate for is one that would make us stronger and better positioned to win. I hear that. I think right now our most important task as the Jewish people is really getting comfortable with ourselves, with being ourselves on all the fronts. I, I agree with you that I think that could potentially make space for creating better relationships with not just Palestinians, but the rest of our neighbors in the Middle East. I think that's an essential part of the journey that we need to take going forward. But in general, you know, for our own internal satisfaction with ourselves, um, our own internal peace with one another, because prior to this war, we were almost at each other's throats mm -hmm. over our identity. So really, that to me is like the biggest challenge that we have to overcome as the Jewish people. And it's the like work that we need to be doing ourselves right now. And I agree, it could potentially lead to a place where we might be ready to make peace with the Palestinians in a way that would work for both us and them. And it's still a conversation that we can have during wartime that's not necessarily focused outwards on peace with the neighbors, but inwards on getting comfortable with who we really are. Yeah, of course. And just for the record, you still support my approach to peace more than anybody else's, right? Yes, 100%. I mean, I think the idea that the Jewish people are somehow going to divide our land, give part of it up and say, we have no responsibility over this, you know, we're going to let someone else be in control of it is... It's dishonest to them, it's dishonest to ourselves, and on a practical level, there's no way that it could work because it doesn't take into account what Palestinians even want for themselves. Meaning like we, all of the people who have the deepest connection to this land don't want to divide it. They don't want to see it divided. And so if you're trying to make both people happy by dividing it without taking into account that the people who have like basically or the most passionate about the land want to keep it together, it's starting from a bad premise to begin with. So it's a non-starter. Yeah, yeah, of course. Anything else you want to talk about? I think that's all. I think this was a great check-in to just take the pulse of where everyone's at during this war. I think there's a lot of shifting attitudes towards ourselves, the world, um, both within the Jewish people and like across the globe that is happening. And so it's, it's healthy to take the temperature on that once in a while mm -hmm. to see how things are progressing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd like to once again thank all of our Patreon supporters for keeping this show free and independent. Those who haven't joined them yet, who would like to, you can go to patreon.com slash vision movement. We really can't do this without uh, your support. And for those of you who are not able to support us financially right now, we're going to ask you to give us a really good rating, good review, a thumbs up, a like, and help us get higher in the algorithm. Is that how you say it? Get higher help in the algorithm? Help us increase our exposure. Right. If you like these ideas and you want them to spread, there are very practical things you can do to help spread them. And if you want to check out our show notes of this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 115.